I want to welcome you today. Let's uh, let's read our scripture text together for this morning, and then we'll pray. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Let's bow in prayer together. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to teach us. We pray that you would help us today to understand the things that your spirit wants to say uh, to us individually, to us as a church. Lord, that we would hear it, that we would obey it. Lord, um, thank you today for those young people who have graduated from high school this year, from LifePoint. Lord, we love them. We uh, have so valued the privilege of watching them grow up among us, from children to young adults and uh, to see their accomplishments and to see their dreams and their aspirations for the future. And Lord, we pray that you would meet them at every point along the way and that you would draw them to yourself, continually draw them to yourself, that they would know you, that they would love you, that they would live for you uh, in all of the places they go and in all the things that they do. Lord, teach us now by your spirit. Help us to hear the things you want, want us to hear and give us hearts to obey. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in the 1980s, uh, a youth ministry leader, uh, actually 1990s rather, a youth ministry leader in Holland, Michigan, uh, wanted to help the youth in her church to contemplate uh, a particular question that uh, with every, with respect to every part of their lives, every relationship, every task, every class that they were taking, uh, a question that they, she felt was uh, just really important for them to take to heart. And that question was, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? To make a long story short, uh, from that church, Janie Tinklenberg unwittingly spawned a grassroots movement that spread uh, just across the United States. It just got fire, spread across the United States and around the world. And uh, some of you will remember this. As that movement began to, to reach critical mass, uh, there were bracelets, there were T-shirts, there, was, uh, there were posters, bumper stickers, even jewelry was produced that uh, featured that ubiquitous acronym, WWJD. Uh, what would Jesus do? And while the commercial demand has, has subsided a bit, 
that now well-known phrase hasn't gone away. I imagine that some of you may still have items that bear those four letters and a question mark. But the question, what would Jesus do, is, is, is hardly a new one. As far back as the, the 15th century, there was a Catholic monk named Thomas Akempis who wrote a book titled Imitatio Christi, or The Imitation of Christ, in which he essentially uh, asked the same question and then contemplated several pretty deep answers uh, for everyday life and everyday relating. And then, and then in the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon, a, a British evangelical preacher in London, uh, published a sermon in which he just repeatedly asked the question, what would Jesus do? Uh, some of you know Loretta Duncan, who's part of our church. Loretta is a professional educator. She's currently the principal at Chloe Clark Elementary School in DuPont. And uh, she is well-loved and admired by me and by my family. When our daughter Lauren graduated from Western Washington University uh, and was experiencing her first few years of employment as a music specialist in the public schools, uh, she reached out on many occasions for advice and for encouragement and sometimes a shoulder to cry on uh, from Loretta as an experienced seasoned educator. And, and Loretta was really there for her. So our family developed our new acronym, which was WWLD, what would Loretta do? And, and so far we haven't acquired a marketing contract, but who knows? But it actually comes up quite often in our family. It's kind of become one of those insider family jokes. As we're going to see this morning, the Apostle Peter clearly contemplated the question, what would Jesus do as he went about fulfilling the, the ministry that the Lord Jesus had entrusted to him? Uh, let's begin at verse 32 of chapter 9. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. That, that first phrase, here and there, uh, just it literally means um, as that Peter was passing through all. That would be a literal translation. So uh, I get the impression as I read verse 1 that, that Peter's just visiting small communities of believers throughout Judea here and there, um, some of which probably had fled during the persecution that broke out against the church in Jerusalem under Saul, as is described there in verse 1 of chapter 8. And perhaps... Uh, he was doing what, what Paul himself would later do, visiting churches, uh, teaching, encouraging the disciples in each of those places. So Peter, as we, as we meet him here, he's, he's no longer in Jer Jerusalem. In the latter part of uh, verse 1, Luke tells us that he came down uh, also to the saints who lived at Lydda. Now, when you read in the New Testament, came down, it's usually coming down from Jerusalem because Jerusalem is geographically the highest point in all of Israel. Um, so he came down to the saints who lived at Lydda. So, so where's Lydda? Well, in the Old Testament, Lydda was, uh, had another name. Uh, its name was Lod, L-O-D. And, and it was one of the cities in, in the area of Israel, uh, the land of Canaan in those days that was apportioned to the tribe of Benjamin. Today, the, the modern city is actually called again by its ancient name, Lode, and it's about 10 miles southeast, give or take, 10 miles southeast of Tel Aviv on the Judean coastal plain. Um, if you've ever flown to Israel, uh, unless perhaps you were aboard a military flight, you probably landed at Ben-Gurion International Airport. 
Uh, in which case, you've been to Lydda, you've been to Lod, uh, because actually the airport, uh, part of the airport is built uh, on the ancient site of the city of Lydda. I notice that Luke refers to the disciples at Lydda as saints, and that the Greek word there is hagioi, or holy ones. And when God called you and you transferred your trust to Jesus Christ, when you were baptized with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit took up residence in your life, and you were, the Bible says, sanctified, that is made holy. God set you apart as his very own for his purposes and, and for his glory, and, and that's that's what it means to be a saint. It means to be one of God's holy ones, people he has set apart, made new in Christ, set apart as his own treasured possession. Uh, it doesn't mean you walk around with a, a golden halo, uh, you know, around your head constantly bumping into things and messing up your hair. It does, it, that's not what it means. And it doesn't mean that you'll never sin again as long as you live. It doesn't mean that at all. It means that God has set his grace on you, that he's called you to believe in Jesus, that he's adopted you as his own son or daughter, that he's transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son whom he loves. It means that it actually has nothing to do with what you do or I do. It has everything to do with what God does for us through Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit. So Peter's visiting Saints at Lydda, people like you and me. And there this man named Aeneas is healed. Verse 33, there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. As part of, I've shared this before, but as part of my sermon preparation each week, I, I usually make a point, having after having done my initial study of the passage, and as I'm kind of figuring out, okay, this is how I'm going to lay it all out. This is how I'm going to communicate this. I usually go and watch at least three sermons on YouTube from great preachers and just kind of see how they broke it all down and how they presented it. And I can tell you that this week I heard at least five different pronunciations of this man's name, and that drove me crazy. And one of them, one guy actually pronounced it in a way that refers to a part of your posterior, and 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 I just it's like ah, and, and so and so I did a little uh, research and and uh, and discovered here's the correct correct pronunciation, Ineas. Let's just say that together, Ineas, and uh, that's that's free. Um, you're going to sound smart in a life group this week. Uh, his, his name means praise. What a cool name, huh? Ineas, uh, praise. And Luke tells us only two things about Aeneas' condition when Peter first laid eyes on him. One, he had been bedridden for eight years. And second, he was paralyzed. Now, I, I don't know about you. I've never been in bed for eight years. Uh, there are times when I feel like I'd like to be. Um, but even when I had COVID, it was like that. Being in bed as long as I had to be in bed, that nearly killed me. Um, so, you know, eight years, imagine that. Eight years, bedridden and paralyzed. Notice also what Luke doesn't tell us about Aeneas. He doesn't tell us whether Aeneas was a believer in Jesus. He doesn't tell us how Peter met him. You know, whether Peter just happened into Aeneas' bedroom one night. <laughs> it was like, I don't know. Or whether others introduced uh, them or, or, or Peter just, you know, I don't know. But... But what he does tell us is what Peter said to him. And listen to what he says. Peter said to him, Aeneas, 
Jesus Christ heals you. Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Now, I think that last phrase would be something that, that you parents should paint on the ceiling in your kids' bedrooms, right? I mean, right above their bed uh, so that the first thing they see when they, they get up in the morning, they open their eyes, are the words, rise and make your bed, Acts 9.34. And it, and it has the advantage of being a command kind of from God. It's biblical. It's practical. Hard to argue with. It's to the point. Get up. Get responsible. Get with it. Anyway, just a random free thought. No charge. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there you go. But but of course, for Aeneas, that, that command from Peter had a much greater meaning and significance because he hadn't stood up. He hadn't moved in eight years. For eight long years, he'd been paralyzed, a prisoner of his own body, like the lame man at the beautiful gate whom we met in chapter 3. He's unable to move about without the total assistance of others transporting him. He was completely dependent on others or just about everything. And I think it's possible that those words from Peter may, may have been nearly impossible for Aeneas to process. Aeneas, Jesus Christ, heals you. Rise and make your bed. But what did he do? Luke says, and immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. I don't miss that this healing was not a gradual process. It didn't come after surgical procedures and months and months of physical therapy. Immediately he rose. Immediately he rose. Paralysis now, paralysis now something that was a part of his past. Physical freedom, his, his new reality. And everybody saw him now because now he's getting around. He's in the marketplace. He's walking along the road. And, and Luke tells us that those who saw him turned to the Lord. Let me say one other thing about that before we move on. The, the word immediately he rose tells us the immediacy, right? That's obvious. But, but when, when Peter said, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Here's what he's not saying. He's, he's not saying, Aeneas, Jesus Christ may heal you if you just kind of repent of your sin and get your act together. Not what he's saying. Nor is he saying Jesus Christ will heal you in the future. Nor is he saying that Jesus Christ is in the process of healing you. The word he uses in the Greek tense tells us that in that moment, Jesus Christ healed him. Like that. When Peter spoke the words, Jesus Christ healed Aeneas. The second amazing miracle in this short passage is the, the raising of this woman whose name was Tabitha. What do we know about Tabitha? In verse 36, Luke tells us her name. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. Yeah. My thoughts exactly. So so where is Joppa? Joppa is just northwest of Lod or Lydda. And today, uh, Joppa is a suburb of modern Tel Aviv. It, it's, it's called uh, Jaffa or Yafo today. Um, when, when Marcy and I had the privilege, great privilege of being in Israel a few years ago, uh, I remember 
Uh, on the first night we were there, we stayed in Tel Aviv and um, walked down so that we could put our feet in the Mediterranean and say that we had, you know, it was kind of one of those things. Yeah, there's our feet, they're in the Mediterranean. And we took a picture of our feet in the Mediterranean. But as we were standing there and having having at that time recently finished a sermon here at Life, our sermon series here at LifePoint through the book of the prophet Jonah, I, I stood there and looked down the coast at, at, at Joppa and realized there it was here. This is, this is where Jonah got on the boat, thinking that he could flee from the presence of the Lord. And uh, Joppa is, a, is a, probably the most important seaport in all of Israel today. It's a, it's a major commercial port. We didn't get to go there because at the time there was unrest uh, to the south, and uh, so we didn't get to see most of southern Israel. But I saw it with my own eyes down the coast. You know, I've always felt kind of sorry for this woman, not only because she had died, but because of her Greek name Dorcas, you know, and I mean, what, what parent would give a child a name that, uh, like that, when, when shortened to a nickname, it comes out as Dork, you know, you can be, hey, Dork, the rest of your life. But, but you see, that's only because I'm viewing her name through a modern lens. In fact, both the name Tabitha, which is Hebrew, and Dorcas, which is Greek, both those names mean gazelle. Or if you don't know what a gazelle is, think of an antelope. It's very similar. In ancient Israel, to be, to be likened to a gazelle is to be described as graceful and as beautiful. And uh, so I imagine that when she was born, she must have been a beautiful baby. And I think that uh, her parents must have seen the brightness of her eyes and that for some reason that, that's another thing that's associated with that that name, bright eyes, and, and couldn't help but think of a gazelle. They gave her a, a sweet name. Luke goes on in his description of Tabitha and, and adds that she was full of good works and acts of charity. And this last week, as I as I was doing my sermon preparation, I happened to listen to a message from uh, on this scripture text from Chuck Smith, uh, who the late Chuck Smith, the much loved former pastor of Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, California founder of the Calvary Chapel movement. And as he came in in his message to verse 36, he related how uh, when his own mother was dying, he would go and sit with her, just be present with her, hold her hand, talk with her. And on one of those occasions, he said that he began to reflect on her hands as he held them, and he called them her beautiful hands. And they became even more beautiful to him as he recalled the many times that those hands had held him, had comforted him when he was a child. How those hands had bathed him and dressed him and prepared countless meals and snacks for him. The innumerable ways through the intervening years that she had used her hands to express her love for him. And, I, and I'm guessing that some of you are thinking now of your own mother and of her hands. Her beautiful, beautiful hands. In the latter part of verse 36, Luke makes comment on the works of Tabitha's hands. She apparently had an ongoing ministry of making clothing for the poor, particularly particularly widows there in Joppa. In verse 37, he goes on, In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. 
So Peter rose and went with them. And we're left to wonder what it was that the disciples in Lydda hoped that Peter might do for Tabitha. I mean, she had already died. And yet still they, they urged him to come without delay. And perhaps they hoped beyond hope that Peter, the apostle, Peter, the miracle worker, might be able to do something to reverse what had already happened. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. And again, here they are sharing memories of Dorcas, of her love, her good works, the various ways that that she had contributed to their lives, very much like memorial services of today where there are tables set up that feature mementos of the life of the deceased and, and photographs of them and their activities throughout the years. And I'm sure that there were smiles and laughter mixed in with those tears as they remembered the life of this woman, Dorcas, who had clearly meant so much to so many. And yet the word that Luke employs to describe the weeping of the widows indicates that they were not weeping quietly, they were they were weeping loudly. And they were expressing extreme grief. If you've ever heard Middle Eastern women mourning and wailing, you, you know what that sounds like. So reading on at verse 40, but Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes and when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up. You picture that? Just takes her by the hand and she swings her legs out onto the floor and stands up. Peter may not have known the will of the Lord in the matter at first, and that may have been part of the reason that he knelt and prayed. It may have been, Lord, what am I supposed to do here? Show me. Asking whether Tabitha, in fact, should be raised, and if so, exactly how he should proceed. And I, I think it's likely that Jesus raised Tabitha in answer to Peter's prayer. The Apostle Paul would later write to the disciples in Corinth, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And to the Philippian believers, to depart and be with Christ is far better. And these these two statements from Paul combine to indicate that, that when a believer in Jesus Christ dies, he or she at the precise moment of physical death is translated into the presence of the Lord. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the Bible says. I shared in the first service, one of my favorite images of this from, from literature is, is from uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Last Battle, which uh, Jimmy helped me remember the title. It's the final book in, in the Chronicles of Narnia, and, and I think it's either Peter or Edmund that, that, that it's being talked about, but he's on a train, and there's a, a terrible uh, train wreck in which he dies. But as C.S. Lewis writes it, Peter felt a bump, felt a bump, and suddenly he was in Narnia. So there's this terrible collision, you know, and, and smoke and metal and all the rest. Peter feels a bump and then he's in Narnia. And that's the picture that, that when you and I die at the moment of death, we go directly into the presence of the Lord. So imagine with me what Tabitha was experiencing. Her, her body had died. 
She was dead before Peter arrived in Joppa, and now she's with Jesus in his very presence, beholding his face, viewing the, the, the glorious wonders of heaven. We can't even imagine quite what that will be like, being reunited with loved ones who had gone on before her, but then she hears a faint voice seemingly far away behind her, Tabitha, arise. And suddenly she's back in her body. And, and, and maybe Peter sees her body move just a little and, and her eyelids begin to twitch. And then they come open. And the first thing she sees isn't Jesus anymore, but Peter. I don't, I don't imagine Peter looked quite as good to her as, as Jesus had been looking. And it isn't heaven anymore, but it's earth. It's Joppa, and she's in a room that was perhaps very familiar to her. Kind of like coming back from a Florida vacation to the rain in Washington, right? But better on one end and worse on the other. I wonder what she thought and felt at that moment. Was she disappointed? Was she happy to be back with her friends in Joppa? You know, I'd be surprised if she didn't feel that heaven was, as Paul said, better by far. That she'd rather be away from her body and present with the Lord. I'm pretty sure that she did. And that's why in times past I've sometimes felt conflicted about praying for the healing of someone who's dying. A believer who's sick and about to die. Um, sometimes feels selfish to ask God to restore them when for them to be with him and the beauty and the rest of heaven is really far better. I can only think that God clearly had a continuing purpose in raising her from the dead that he knew and that she in time might come to understand. One person during between services said, you know, maybe Jesus explained to her, sending you back. There's, I have a continuing purpose for you there. Those folks need you there. I don't know. And then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive and it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. Now, there are four gifts of the Spirit, four spiritual gifts, four divine enablements for mission and ministry that, that I see operative here through Peter in these two vignettes. First of all, there's, and this won't come up on your screen, but the first one is the gift of knowledge. Gift of knowledge. How else but by the revelation of knowledge from the Holy Spirit would Peter have been able to say unhesitatingly with complete confidence, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Apart from the Holy Spirit speaking it to Aeneas, it would have come out as mere presumption, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? How else would, would he have known that he should raise Tabitha from the dead? Secondly, there's, there's the gift of miracles. Healing a paralytic and raising a dead woman to life clearly belong to the realm of miracles. God accomplishing something only he could do, but doing it through a human being. We know that the apostles were uh, on a couple of occasions giving, given commands to raise, not only to heal the sick, but to raise the dead. Third, there's the gift of faith. Peter had 
confidence that what he had revealed to him as his will, God would accomplish. And so he proceeded to minister the power of God in that confidence. And fourth, there's the gift of evangelism, because in both cases, many believed in Jesus as they witnessed the miracle or saw Aeneas standing and walking and Tabitha very much alive. So observe with me then that both miracles were performed by the power of Jesus. Peter had no illusions about his own power or authority to overcome the wasting effects of disease or the power of death itself. And so he did not attempt to overcome disease and death by his own authority and power. Instead, to the paralyzed, bedridden Aeneas, he said, Jesus Christ heals you. And before addressing the dead Tabitha, he got down on his knees and prayed a detail which must have come from Peter to Luke in telling the story because no one else was present. Remember that Jesus is creator God. The New Testament presents Jesus as the creative agent in the Godhead. John wrote in his gospel of Jesus, all things were made by him and without him, nothing was made that has been made. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth or in Colossae rather, that that by him, that is Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. To Jesus belongs all authority in heaven and on earth. So, uh, So that when Jesus commands healing, listen to this, when Jesus commands healing, when he commands the dead to be brought to life, there is not a molecule, there is not a particle, there is not a cell in that person's body that is not absolutely subject to his command. In him, John said, was life. All of creation is subject to the command of Jesus Christ. Notice with me also that both miracles recall the resurrection power of Jesus himself. Because of his confidence in the power of Christ in both interactions, Peter addressed Aeneas and Tabitha with the same command. Anastathy. Arise, get up, stand up, rise up. The gospel writers and the apostles use the same word for what God did in raising Jesus from the dead. So no accident. No coincidence, Aeneas' recovery from paralysis, Tabitha being raised from the dead, were both visible signs of the power of God and the name of Jesus Christ and the new life that Jesus brings when we look to him for forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God. We too are raised by the same power, the Bible says, that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. We're raised from the death of sin to newness of life. In performing both miracles, Peter followed the example of Jesus. Have you ever wondered what Peter thought as he approached these situations? Do you you think he was always clear and confident about it all? I'm going to guess that he wasn't always clear, wasn't always confident. Why? Because he's a human being like we are. See, I think he must have reached back frequently into his memory and asked, what would Jesus have done in this situation? What would Jesus do? And bringing it to mind, he did what he knew the master would do, what the master had shown him, what the master had commanded him to do. And I wonder if you recall the story of another paralytic whom Jesus healed. In Mark chapter 2, it's recorded that Jesus was teaching at at a home in Capernaum, his own hometown. 
And it's one of my favorite stories in all the Gospels. I just love this picture because the the, the house is full. Um, in, in the King James in which I grew up, it says uh, they couldn't enter the house for the press, which I, I thought I thought the news reporters were there. But um, did you get that, the press? Ha ha. <laughs> but the house is packed. And there's some Pharisees in there and some Sadducees, some religious leaders. And these four guys come and they're carrying a, a friend on a stretcher and he's paralyzed. And because the house is so crowded and because those men, those four men, those four friends would not be denied. Uh, they climbed up on the roof of the house, tore the roof open and lowered their friend on his bed right down in front of Jesus. And I, I just love the picture because you've got these stodgy Pharisees, right? And they're all with the stern looks on their faces and they're you know, wondering about Jesus and they're testing him and, and they're all business. And, and uh, at some point, you know, a roof tile fell and hits, hits one of them in the head or lands on his shoulder and straw and thatch and stuff just starts falling, cascading down on top of them. And they look up. And, and here's these four guys waving, smiling and waving down through the hole in the roof. I, I wish somebody would make a movie about that, one of my favorite pictures. When Jesus saw their faith, Mark records, he said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Now let's pick it up at verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Uh, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise up, take up, take up your bed and walk? It's a rhetorical question, right? And what is easier? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven because that doesn't require any kind of empirical evidence. But to say, rise, take up your bed and walk requires that evidence. But, Jesus goes on, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and, and glorified God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. See, just as Jesus had said to him, rise, pick up your bed and go home, so Peter said to Aeneas, rise and make up your bed. In Mark 5, the story is recorded of a man named Jairus, a synagogue ruler who came to Jesus and pleaded with him to heal his little daughter who was very sick. But by the time Jesus arrived at that man's house, the little girl had died. And, and again, the people were weeping and wailing loudly. Well, let's pick it up at verse 39 of Mark 5. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement. 
And again, when presented with the death of Tabitha, Peter had to have recalled that day when, when Jesus raised this little girl who had died. And so just as Jesus had done, Peter sent the weeping mourners out of the room. And after praying, Peter again did as Jesus had done. The words he spoke were nearly identical to the words that Jesus had spoken. And many have observed that if Peter actually spoke these words in Aramaic on this occasion, only a single letter would have been different. Jesus had said, Talitha kumi, little girl, arise. Peter said, Tabitha, Tabitha kumi, gazelle, arise. Finally, both miracles were uh, resulted in people putting their faith in Jesus. When Aeneas was healed, Luke records that all the residents of Lydia and or Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. And similarly, when Peter presented Tabitha alive to her friends, it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. You might ask regarding Lydda, all, really, everyone believed in the Lord? It's a good question. I don't think we need to interpret all as meaning literally every single resident of Lydda, but, but rather many, maybe even the majority. Luke's point is that that these events gave powerful evidence to many of the presence of the kingdom of God, of the identity of Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, and of his resurrection from the dead and glorification at the right hand of the Father. Many turned to the Lord in Joppa. Many believed in the Lord uh, at Lydda. So how should we apply the lessons of a passage like this one to our own lives? Some of it may seem very foreign, very far from our own experience. And I wonder if you've ever wrestled with the question of whether God could actually use you in his kingdom and in the church for his purposes. Maybe when needs are made known here at LifePoint or, or somewhere else for volunteers to serve in various ways and you felt the nudge of the Holy Spirit, you've hesitated because you're not confident that God could ever use you. Let me just share five simple applications that I think arise from this passage and that I hope will be encouraging and helpful to you. First of all, God uses people who are willing to go. God uses people who are willing to go. When I was a little boy, my parents were those kinds of parents that were always the last ones out of church on Sunday. Um, you know, so I spent a lot of time there. It might have been a predictor of my future career. Um, but they would hang out, you know, drink coffee with their friends and talk endlessly, seemed endlessly as a child. Uh, same was true of my buddy Rex and his parents. His, and a, lot, a lot of times it was his parents and my parents that were drinking coffee and making us crazy. And one of the ways that I remember making use of that time with Rex was to get inside his parents' Studebaker. That, that's a car for those of you who are younger. Uh, Studebaker... Um, and we would pretend that we were Batman and Robin or uh, the Green Hornet and Cato or, or some other superhero. And that Studebaker would, would, in our imaginations, become the Batmobile or, or a rocket ship or, you know, who knows what. And, and we would play out all kinds of imaginative scenarios. But here's, here's a little newsflash. That car never moved. We were in it. We were imagining it moving, but it never moved. It was fixed in one place, which is a good thing with two little boys in it. So something I've, I've never forgotten is that it is impossible to steer a parked car. Have you ever observed that? 
It is impossible to steer a parked car. You see, God, God is willing to do the steering in our lives if, if we'll just turn the ignition, we'll just turn the key and shift out of park into drive. Even neutral is better than park at that point. See, it's been said that God doesn't call the qualified. Instead, he qualifies the called. And if, if you're willing to allow God to use you when he calls, he will provide everything you need to accomplish his will for you, in you, and through you. He'll provide the fuel. He'll provide the guidance. And Peter encountered Aeneas and Tabitha because he was in motion, because he was available to the Holy Spirit to be used by him. God set the appointments. Peter discovered them. Peter encountered them. And that means you'll never know until you go. You'll never know until you go. You'll never know what. You'll never know whether God will use you or how he will use you or when he will use you and with whom he will use you. But listen, if you're available and you're willing, you'll find him at work in you and through you. God will never force your cooperation. He's a gentleman like that. And his spirit who lives in you, though, will prompt you He will lead you to the places and to the people he wants you to serve and to influence. In the same way, if you don't or won't pray, if you won't seek his will and his ways, you'll never experience the the thrill of seeing God answer your prayers. You'll, You'll hear about it from others. You might see it happening through the prayers of others, but never through your own. But if you will seek his face, seek his will for your life, his hand on your life, you will have the opportunity to see him do things that you could never imagine that he would do through you. And many of you have identified what we're just calling um, your one here at LifePoint, your one, uh, that one person for whom you're praying that they will come to personal faith in Jesus Christ. But you may never see that come to pass if you won't pray. You may never see that come to pass if you won't speak up when opportunities arise, when they present themselves. When in doubt, do what you have seen Jesus do. And of course, you haven't seen Jesus himself with your own eyes. You will someday, I hope, I pray. But until then, you, till then, you see him in the pages of his word, the Bible. Familiarize yourself with what Jesus did during his earthly ministry, how he did it, and to whom, for whom. And then seek to pattern your ministry after his. That, that's what Peter did with Aeneas and Tabitha. Look, look into the pages of the Gospels and ask yourself, what would Jesus do in the situations, in the relationships, in, 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 in the, the circumstances in which you find yourself? What does his word tell me I should do? And then do that. Do that. Trust in his power and not your own. Trust in his power, not your own. I read this week that someone decided to offer a a witty, concise answer to the question, what would Jesus do? It came out as frog, F-R-O-G, fully rely on God. Fully rely on God. And that's what we see Peter do. Peter never claimed to be Aeneas' healer. He said, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. 
When Peter and John encountered the lame man at the beautiful gate of the temple, whom we met several weeks ago in chapter 3, the lame man asked them for alms, for, for a financial contribution. Do you remember Peter's words? He said, I have no silver and gold. I never carry cash. Will you take a credit card? No, he didn't say that. I have no silver and gold. But what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and rise up and walk. And, and, and Peter took that man by the hand, lifted him to his feet and immediately, 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 as in the case of Aeneas, he was healed and he began to walk. And, and it says he began to leap and to praise God. And, and this man had been paralyzed his entire life for over 40 years. That man, like Aeneas, was healed in the name and by the power of Jesus Christ. In the busyness and pressure of daily life, it's so easy to forget, isn't it? That we're not called to live the Christian life or to minister to others in our own power and by our own wisdom, our own cleverness. I, I've tried that, trust me. It, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. Everything that God will ever call you to do is to be done in the name and by the power of Jesus. And when we do, we can truly give God the glory for the outcomes. The no longer lame man at the beautiful gate didn't go walking and leaping and praising God or praising Peter and John. He, he praised God. When the residents of Lydda saw that Aeneas had been healed, they didn't praise Peter. They turned to the Lord. And when the residents of Joppa saw Tabitha, whose death they had bitterly mourned, very much alive and well, the news traveled like wildfire and many believed. Not in Peter, but in the Lord. Now, I'm sure that Peter received all kinds of gratitude and affirmation and high fives. But, but Peter's goal was, as ours also must always be, to bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ. Our goal must not be for, for people to be impressed with us. To kind of think we're something great. But always that they would be overwhelmed with the mercy and the grace and the love and the power of Jesus. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? And what will you do in light of it? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for these two little vignettes, these little stories of big things that you did that brought incredible change, brought transformation to the lives of Aeneas and to Tabitha, to, to all of their neighbors and their friends and all the members of the church and their families. And it's so easy to read over these little stories and not to read into them and, and to really dig down into them. Thank you for this. And, and, and Lord, thank you that, that you trained Peter, impulsive foot-in-the-mouth Peter, was always going out in front of you and and yet uh, a man that you humbled and a man that became so useful to your kingdom. Lord, let us in our lives be like Peter. Let us ask, what would Jesus do? And then understanding that, to do it, to implement it in our relationships and in the, the encounters of our lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.